Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we hear from Roland Oliphant, who's reporting in Donbass, discuss the reticence of Ukraine's allies to supply F-16 fighter jets, and we speak to Ukrainian journalist Svetlana Moronets on her reporting and analysis of Ukrainian politics. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 31st of January, day 342. And with me to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, live in Donbass, our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, and our guest today is Ukrainian journalist Svetlana Moronez, currently working at The Spectator, a British political and news magazine. We started by hearing from Roland, who's on the road in Donbass. I'm in Kramatorsk right now in the back of the car, using it as a studio. (laughs) Um, I'm kind of in Donbass to kind of try to to cover, get some eyes on the big battle here, which is the Battle of Bakhmut. We've talked about it a lot. It's become kind of like a black hole at the centre of a galaxy, really. It's just drawing in forces from both sides to an immense degree, and you can kind of feel it. The closer you get, the hospitals start to fill up with wounded who've come from Bakhmut and you talk to, to soldiers or, or policemen or border guards or almost anybody and they're either going to Bakhmut or they're coming back from Bakhmut or they've they've got mates serving in Bakhmut. So that's why I'm here. We were yesterday in Chasiv Yar. Chasiv Yar is a very small town. About It's about seven miles from Bakhmut, I think, when I measured it on the map. It's essentially become a, a really key logistical hub because the Russians have managed to basically flanked Bakhmut from the south and they are now threatening to cut the main highway into town from a town called Konstantinovka, not far from here. And since they took Solodar, they've also there's another highway that comes down from the north, but that's also unsafe. So the Ukrainians now only really have one route 
into Bakhmut, and that is through Chesivyar. And you kind of don't have to be, you don't have to be Napoleon looking at the map to work out its, its kind of tactical significance. So been there the past couple of days, very loud, lots and lots of artillery fire to be heard. I wouldn't kind of pretend to know exactly what bang means what gun but it sounded fairly heavy i definitely heard some grad rockets this morning i saw some helicopters you'll have seen these videos of them right they kind of they fly in very very low and they put their noses up and fire off some rockets and then put their flares and turn around so ran into a couple of them this morning i'm fairly sure they were ukrainian if not then the russians were much closer than i'd like to think but you know on the whole i think i think the atmosphere is it's pretty nervous and and, and it's not that optimistic i mean i, I don't i don't have like a bird's eye view of the battlefield and things like that, but kind of talking to people and picking things up and, and, and kind of what people are saying. I think the sense is that Bakhmut may, may, I'm not saying it will, but may go the way of, of Severodonetsk in due course and that the Ukrainians eventually are going to pull back to another line. I'm not saying that's definitely what's going to happen. That's very much a reflection of the kind of atmosphere and conversations you have around the place rather than the kind of official pronouncement. But that, that seems to be the feeling. Roland, you spoke to the, the mayor of Hasavyar when you were there. What did he tell you about the situation in his town? Well, the, the, the actual quote was in my dispatch in today's paper. I don't know what our rules are on foul language. I, th- I think you can go for it. It's fine. I mean, you know, people are dying all the time. So, you know, <laughs> obscenity. Um, I, said, I said, listen, could you just sum up the situation in two words? And he said, stable, stably fucked is what he said. And he said, look, we're having incoming fire basically every day. We've had wounded, we've had killed. The school's been blowing up. And they've shelled two of our nurseries. He said they were empty at the time. There was no one in them, no one was hurt, but they've been wiped out. A lot of houses just driving around the town have lost their windows. You know, kind of shells have plopped in amongst the... Um, these kind of so if you travel in the um former soviet union you'll see these kind of ubiquitous five-story apartment blocks that they call khrushchevkas because khrushchev is credited with coming up with them as a kind of temporary solution to the housing crisis in the 1950s and they never got replaced so typical kind of working class neighborhood with these five-story apartment blocks and you can see where shells have just kind of dropped in about 40% of the population are still in the town, he said. He's trying to get more people to to get out. But of course, this is a pattern you see in every single town that's caught up in this war. Those who can get out or have the money to get out or want to get out, go. And eventually the the population is slowly winnowed down, right? And, And you end up with people who either can't leave because... Either they're too poor, they can't afford it, they don't have anywhere else to go, or maybe they're elderly or very sick and can't really move. So you you, you always have the kind of very dedicated, heroic local officials who are kind of staying around to hold on to my town for as long as they can, and medics and nurses and things like that. You also have, it might not be a very pleasant truth to talk about, but basically you've got kind of feckless people who... I think would struggle in, uh, in any level of society who just can't get themselves together or, 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 or get out. And then lastly, you have a certain proportion of the population, especially in Donbass, who are probably kind of quietly or not so quietly kind of hoping the Russians are going to get there because they harbour pro-Russian sympathies. Now, you can't really kind of take a poll and work out who's who in the town, but that process is kind of ongoing. There's definitely a lot of fear around. They've got this little, um, these points of invincibility, they call them. So when the... When the Russians started their huge missile bombardment on energy infrastructure, 
um, back in autumn, President Zelensky said, we're going to have points of invincibility. So in every town, authorities were told to set up a place where you can go and warm up and charge your phone and just have some electricity, some water, some heat in case it's gone out in your building. Well, I visited one of them yesterday and quite crowded, quite a simple space, small ground floor room, trestle tables, a couple of homemade stoves fired by woods and people sitting there getting a lot of electricity and everybody's talking about the same thing you know do i stay do i go can i go if i go is my husband going to get drafted or press ganged at the checkpoint that's a rumor going around i have no evidence that's true but it's definitely a rumor people are talking about if i go will i have a job will i get a salary and balancing that over the fact that everybody knows the battle is getting closer and closer and it's audibly getting closer and closer and it's quite possible if if the ukrainians do withdraw from bakhmut i'm not saying they will but if they do this is going to be a frontline town and it's going to get pretty bad so yeah that was the uh that was the kind of environment there Thanks, Roland. Just one more question from me before I ask if uh, Don Francis or Svetlana have any questions for you. Um, you mentioned that you sense a lot of uh, fear and nerves amongst people, but what about people's morale? And if you've spoken to s- soldiers and uh, bodyguards and, and, and officials and so on, what, what's, what's your sense of um, their, their morale at this point in the war? I don't, I don't really detect low morale um, amongst the soldiers I've spoken to. Um, I mean, it's... It's a tricky one, right? I think people around here have a, you know, they don't have any romantic illusions about what's happening um, over there in Bakhmut. Um, and I think I think it's clear the Russians are making um, a little bit more progress than they would like. Um, but there is no sense, like, of panic, no sense of, oh, no, it's the end or something like that. I think it's quite businesslike. Um, from from what I could tell, you know, people are still kind of going about their work. Um, you see the soldiers kind of moving up and down the roads, like quite, I don't know, unhurriedly. Like they, they there's there's no sense I think that this is um, that this is a crisis or anything. It's just a hard battle, and I know it's a hard battle. And I think the, you know, I mean, I mean, Ukraine's been through this a lot, right, over the past year. These these very long bitterly contested fighting retreats and the idea is to kind of make the russians pay as much as possible in blood for each meter of ground that they take that that is my general sense of the situation when i was speaking to a um i dropped into a hospital the other week the other day not in this region in another region and almost all the guys there had come from back and basically the message was, you know, the lightly wounded, they're going to get patched up. They're going to have like a few days or a couple of weeks to recover. And they're probably going back to their units, probably to fight in the same place. And they seem, the doctors are quite, they're quite careful about letting you speak to people. Their point is like, look, a lot of these guys have literally just seen their best mates be killed in front of them. And so they've got concussions. They're not in the best space. So, you know, this is not, these are not people to kind of get into a deep conversation with. But, you know, one, one or two of them were happy to chat. There was a guy who he'd been in Bakhmut and come under fire from a russian tank which had killed two of his men he'd been saved by by his helmet actually showed me it stopped a bit of shrapnel that would have gone straight into his temple and he was like you know he was quite chipper really i mean given what he'd been through he was like you know i feel much better able to make a bit of a dark joke about it and and he certainly was talking about probably heading back once he was back on his feet 
Well, thank you very much for that, Roland. You're, of course, welcome to stay and contribute to the rest of the discussion, but we totally understand if you need to get going. And thank you so much for calling in. Dom Nichols, can I come to you? Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Hello, Roland. Great to hear you, mate. I just got to... What you're reflecting there is reflected partly in in today's defence update from, from MOD, which I'll speak about in a moment, but also Ukrainian general staff said last night that Russia has been shelling a dozen settlements around the Bakhmut centre over the last 24 hours. And last night, President Zelensky was talking about Russia's big revenge, his words. He said, quote, I think that Russia really wants its big revenge. I think they've already started it. Every day they either bring in more of their regular troops or we see an increase in the num- number of Wagnerites um, you know, from the Wagner mercenary company uh, mercenary group but Rodan my my question for you is from the the Ukrainian troops that you're seeing are you able to offer an opinion on on the general standard of their training are they are they regulars i.e. regulars before the war regulars that joined up conscripted or have we seen any of the troops come through yet that have been part of the training regime here in the UK this we've got about a dozen or I think 13 countries now sent instructors here to the UK to train Ukrainian troops in, in, in their sort of initial training, infantry training. Have any of those made it through yet to the sectors you're seeing? And what's the general state? How would you rate them? You've seen enough soldiers in your life and sailors, but enough soldiers in your life to be able to, to rate them. What do, you, what do you think of their training? Um, I haven't I haven't kind of been in combat with them, so I can't talk about that. In terms of people who've passed through the British training program, I personally haven't met any. I was talking to a guy who said he knows someone who has been trained in Britain and he's gone off, you know, he's finished basic in Britain and he's gone off somewhere else to do some other specialised training before joining a regiment. So, which may mean these guys are really being prepared to be a proper brigade. Some of them may be around. I, I haven't met them. I've met people who were regular soldiers before the war but they're fewer and fewer to be honest there's a lot of people who like passed through volunteer battalions in 2014 2015 but i would say the vast majority of people who i'm seeing now were not soldiers until quite recently certainly at the hospital i was at the doctors who i was speaking to who are real veteran soldiers who who did fight in 2014 2015 have been in the army ever since one of them was in the airborne proper frontline stuff and they were saying look like a lot of the guys who are coming through now, these are like three months ago, they were programmers. So they're not, they're, and, and, and the point they were making was that these guys aren't like us, right? We're professional soldiers. And not only are we professional soldiers, we're doctors. So we deal with death all the time. We're used to it. We know what it's like. And these guys have literally, they've gone from being a computer programmer, a car mechanic, working in a cheese shop, whatever. They're, they're, they've become soldiers. They've been thrown into combat. And they've, a lot of them have literally, they've just come under fire. And a lot of them have literally just seen their mates get blown to pieces in front of them. And it's, and it's bloody tough. And part one of the things that they're really focused on, those guys, was about the kind of mental health implications and kind of, you know, when, when they get back from the front, they're like, look, as much as us patching them up physically, it's about understanding that and understanding what they've gone through and, and helping them out. I mean, in terms of their professionalism and training, I, I don't have your background on, so I haven't got that kind of expert eye. But I mean... Yeah, fairly obviously motivated. I think the Ukrainian armed forces generally have shown a lot of motivation. Standards of kind of like discipline and cleanliness and things like that. I think that varies from unit to unit. And, and some units have reputations for, I mean, I've, I've heard of one particular airborne unit that's got a reputation for being, you know, great, aggressive, throw us in the front. But in terms of the state of the, I mean, I haven't seen it myself. This is, this is like kind of reputation stuff, but you know, the, the state of their kind of dress discipline and, and stuff like that, apparently, and cleanliness, apparently leaves a lot to be desired. Others, I mean, personally, 
at the beginning of the war, I was working with once well, before the war, the Marines, and they were noticeably kind of there was a kind of level of of of, of that kind of personal discipline and and organisation and kind of personal cleanliness that was that was different. I think on the whole, good. I mean, there was a um, I have I have heard British soldiers who have seen these guys up close saying pretty impressive to be honest given given a lot of these guys have been soldiers for say three or four months the the, the motivation shows through that like you, you you have to kind of say well goodness me the, the, these guys don't look like raw recruits anymore they're kind of they're showing the little signs the little tales that you know that, that, that show commitment and and discipline thanks roland dom we know you have to run off in a second so do you want to give us your final updates yeah, sure. And thanks for that, Roland. So Roland is speaking to us or speaking about Chassif Yar and the and the area which is about 10 k's to the west of Bakhmut. Now, that is to situate uh, listeners. That's about 50 k's north of Donetsk City. I now want to sort of lift out of there and let's go about 50 k's to the southwest of Donetsk. So, so about 100 k's from where where Roland was describing. So that's sort of the southern bit of the Donbass front. I want to talk about um, the area around two two small villages called Pavlika and Vuladar. Vuladar is about a couple, just a couple of k's outside of, of Pavlika, but but that's the area that's that's the effectively the front line in that sort of southern sector. Um, they face sort of Zaporizhia, so we're down in the south of the Donbass now. And today's British Defence Intelligence report is saying that Russia has been using or has used the one five five, the one hundred fifty fifth Naval Infantry Brigade. Um, in an unsuccessful assault in that area around uh, since November 2022. And there have been social media reports I've seen that suggest that the, the 155th Naval Infantry Brigade were a pretty class outfit at the start, but got badly mauled and have now been backfilled with conscripts and mobilised personnel. But UKDI, UK Defence Intelligence today, are saying that for the last three days, Russia has been... Um, using that reconstituted brigade to develop probing attacks around those towns, those small towns, Pavlika and Vuladar. Like I say, 50 k's, we're now 50 k's southwest of Donetsk. So three days worth of probing attacks and saying that they've, they have been reconstituted to at least a brigade-sized force and they have made very small incremental advances, but they've only been, they've only, they're only talking about several hundred metres. That's the UK Defence Intelligence estimate, uh, estimate, several hundred metres um, beyond the, the the front line, which has been fairly static for months, and UKDI are saying, uh, "quote Russian commanders are likely aiming to develop a new axis of advance into Ukrainian-held Donetsk Oblast and to divert Ukrainian forces from the heavily contested Bakhmut sector." There is a realistic possibility that Russia will continue to make local gains in the sector. However, it is unlikely that Russia has sufficient uncommitted troops in the area to achieve an operationally significant breakthrough. Uh, unquote. So what they're saying is there that they are they're continuing these probing assaults. They're looking for, as I've described before, this kind of giant Jenga game. They're looking for where the line is is um, weakest and and would seek to push through there. And once you push through, it'll be a hard fight to get through any line. You'll then need some kind of o- uh, operational reserve, fresh troops, uncommitted troops, those not already in contact, to then push through and and exploit any breakthrough that you're able to achieve. And UK defence intelligence is saying that Russia is unlikely to have sufficient uncommitted troops to make any operationally significant breakthrough. So a very tough fight there still in the south as well. And doesn't look as if 
these small incremental gains of a few hundred meters are, are going to be a the Russia will be able to to translate that into any any larger breakthrough but um, we have been concentrating around the Bakhmut area and where Roland's been reporting from recently and and we it's good to just to sort of take a take another look around the rest what's happening in the rest of the rest of the front line um, I'm gonna have to dash now I'll leave you with Svetlana um, but yeah that that's it for me Thank you very much, uh, Dom Nichols. Francis Sternley, before we, before we go to Svetlana, um, Francis, there's been some important news uh, coming out in the diplomatic sphere around the F-16 fighter jets. Can you talk us through that? Well, thanks, David. Yes, uh, this has been obviously an ongoing saga in recent days around this question of whether F-16s will be sent to Ukraine. Some big developments overnight, which is Joe Biden, President of America, of course, has ruled out sending the F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine, rejecting Zelensky's plea for them. He was addressing reporters at the White House last night when he was asked if Washington would offer these planes, and he replied very simply, no. This seems to have... uh, Come, come on the back of other high-level conversations between European partners because Olaf Scholz, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, has also said that he will not be sending uh, any advanced fighter jets. Britain this morning has also said that it doesn't seem it's practical to send UK fighter jets to Ukraine. A Prime Minister's official spokesman has said the UK's Typhoon and F-35 fighter jets are extremely sophisticated and take months to learn how to fly. Given that, we, given that, we believe it is not practical to send these jets into Ukraine. We will continue to provide and accelerate our military support to Ukraine and listen carefully to their requests. Poland too, it has to be said, uh, has also been very sceptical and has made it sound pretty much like they will not also be sending more advanced fighter jets. It's France uh, that are leaving nothing on the table. Macron has said nothing is excluded in principle, but only if certain conditions are met and that it does not lead to an escalation. So very disappointing news, no doubt, for the Ukrainian high command this morning with relation to all of that. I've just got off the phone with Hamish de Breton Gordon, a regular on this podcast, formerly of the 1st uh, Tank Regiment here in Britain, former commander of it, and he's writing for our paper tomorrow. And I was talking, he, he was talking through me and explaining the significance of these fighter jets and offered some quite interesting context, which I'll try and summarise briefly, which is essentially that at the moment we've been talking a lot about this Uh, Russian offensive in March and he thinks that the fighter jets which wouldn't have been ready for this anyway if they were to be sent uh, are not actually necessary for repelling this of course they would be helpful but they're not necessary that the the Ukrainians do have already Soviet era era planes that they'll be able to use but also Britain has sent them some very advanced defense systems for repelling artillery and things like that and other um, weapons attacking tanks so with that in mind, for the, for the uh, repelling of the Russian offensive, we don't need fighter jets. That's what he was saying, or the Ukrainians won't need fighter jets. But for long thinking, long, long term, thinking in terms of large scale offensives from the Ukrainians, whether that be taking your Crimea or seeking to push the Russians completely out of the Donbass and other territories, he thinks that advanced fighter jets will be necessary in the long term, just because of the scale of the operations, the number of soldiers that will be involved in those kind of operations, the number of tanks, the other, the number of armoured vehicles, etc. So 
this is a long-term problem, as it were, as opposed to being something that is very much in the short term. But clearly, I think Ukraine are very keen to emphasise the importance of this because they are thinking long-term. They are thinking about taking Crimea and they know the value of these planes and how many months it will take in order to train Ukrainian pilots to use them. So that's a little bit of interesting context on this. And I think in that, it's also worth bearing in mind that I, I don't think these answers from the West are definitive. You sense the hesitancy from, from France there. And I think that is suggestive of some of the conversations that are taking place. But they feel, as I've been saying, that the best way to do this is to drip, 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 to gradually increase the weapons and the advanced level of the weapons over the long term, because it prevents there ever being a crisis point. That is the feeling, for right or wrong, whether it's accurate or not, that that is the best strategy to be adopted. And to some extent, that has, of course, worked. There has not been a crisis moment. And yet we are much, much further along in terms of the weapons that have been given to Ukraine now than than what was possible earlier on in the war so that's the f-16 picture as it stands but it's still a developing story and who knows maybe france will surprise us in the coming days thank you very much francis uh, for that and i know there are quite a few other updates we want to touch on but let's come back to them uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome our guest today svetlana moronets uh, ukrainian journalist currently at the spectator magazine in london svetlana thank you so much for for joining us um could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the impact of the full-scale invasion on your life and, if you're comfortable, your family and friends? Hi, David. Hi, everyone. Um, this war has been for uh, nine years, so I wouldn't say that uh, it, the situation changed as much as before, since before, because uh, the only things that are the change that are the missiles flying or over the sky and also the other thing is that the world is finally noti- noticed that Russia invaded Ukraine because when I was a kid I was uh, weaving nets to the ski tanks at school and helping to gather food to send them to to send it to the soldiers also a man from my village were repairing tanks in the garage so yes we have been in a war for a long time and finally we are see- receiving help and finally we can fight Russians back. Uh, if to talk about my family, my brother is uh, eight years old and he, I would say he's a kid of war because he was born the year when Russia invaded Donbass and Crimea. And even in his young age, he uh, understands what is going on. He knows that Russia attacked us, that Ukrainians are fighting. Also at school, uh, during the uh, air warnings, uh, all the kids have to go to the bomb shelter. And like right now, they can go to school only twice per week and other days to study on distance because it is still very dangerous. And the bomb shelter that they have in their school is uh, not big enough for all the kids so that's why they like they can go only some days per week to study and it's very it's very heavy and he almost didn't have studying because of covid and now because of the war and i really feel so sorry for him and when i was coming back to ukraine for christmas holidays i was in krakow and uh, he called me and asked me so worried if krakow is being bombed being bombed too because he doesn't understand why why Ukraine is being bombed and other places know and why us and why is it happening, what what we did for having all of that. Well, thank you for giving us um, that context and, and that story of, of your family and, and your brother. Um, 
turning to yourself, can you tell us a little bit about your where where you've come from and been in in the last year? What have you what have you done and seen? Uh, before the full scale invasion, I was working as a freelance journalist in Kyiv, and also before I was reporting from C- Crimea after the occupation. And when the war broke out, full scale war, I was abroad, and that's why. Um, to be honest, I didn't know what to do because what I saw from the news that morning when I woke up is just like Ukraine is being bombed. All of the cities, I called my parents, everybody was crying. That was horrible day. I will never forget it. So I came to UK and uh, luckily uh, I could find a job because when I came here, I got told that uh, foreigners can't get a proper job here in UK. <laughs> but right now I'm writing for The Spectator and I cover the war in Ukraine and also I write the Ukraine in Focus weekly newsletter. Can we um, talk a little bit about some of the politics in Ukraine last week? There was a, a flurry of resignations and sackings. Can you talk us through them and why you feel positively about President Zelensky's response and his actions? Yes, sure. Last week, Ukraine was shaken by a wave of corruption scandals, and I'm sure that our allies were uh, worried about too. Uh, Zelensky fired more than a dozen politicians, even from his close circle, and I guess the biggest scandal was about Ukrainian Ministry of Defense purchasing food for army two or three times higher than the price in the Kyiv stores. And for sure, uh, Ukrainians were outraged. Uh, because while they give their last money to to buy the uh, armor, uh, bulletproof vest, helmets, food, uh, medicine for our soldiers, some politicians trying to enrich themselves uh, during the war. Uh, but I would like to stress that uh, Zelensky's decision to dismiss these politicians was a result of a public demand and also of a work of investigative journalists of U- in Ukraine. Uh, they have done a really great job. And I would say what is different right now to the previous, our previous presidents or U- Ukraine before the invasion in 2014 is that before uh, these investigations led to nothing, like everybody knew that someone is stealing from uh, our high-ranking politicians, but actually president or prime minister, nobody cared and they didn't dismiss these people. So I think also it's important to understand that as EU and uh, US and all our allies are giving us help. They they want to see that all the money and all the weapons are used properly. That's why uh, it was, I think, that this fast reaction from Zelensky and the government was a really good sign that Ukraine is ready to change and to change the system. And I know that US sent a commission to Ukraine who is going to control and check uh, all the aid sent to Ukraine and how they spent the money and how they use the weapons to make sure that anything gets stolen. And and I think that is right. And in this way, Ukraine can fight with Russian propaganda that constantly talks about our weapons being sold on the black markets, which is obviously not true. So I think... Even if every country sends a commission to control the uh, spending of money in Ukraine, I think that that would be great. And Ukrainians, ordinary Ukrainians will be happy because we know that not all the politicians are, uh, are 
behaving in the interest of Ukraine. Thank you for that answer, Svetlana. Can I ask, I mean, my question asked about Zelensky's response and you and you pointed me towards uh, your argument that this was people-led and he, actually Zelensky was kind of responding, responding to um, people's outrage at what, at what these officials had done. Um, I just wanted to ask, do you think that that sense of um, outrage over things like corruption, does that... Do, does that go back? I mean, that goes back to the revolution of dignity to 2014. So this isn't necessarily a new thing. But I wondered whether you could talk us through that a little bit. The the the, the attitude towards this sort of thing in Ukraine, which which I mean, would you say 2014 is a turning point for that? Yes, yes. 2014, when uh, we had Maidan revolution, it was not only against pro-Russian president who refused to sign the EU agreement about association with Ukraine, but it was also against the corrupt system, corrupt politicians, about uh, politicians who were uh, buying uh, gas from Russia on inflated prices and about stealing from uh, money that were intended for reparation of roads or schools or hospital. I know that I know that it sounds horrific and Ukraine really made paid a lot for changing that system and actually that was the reason one of the reasons why Putin invaded because in 2014 when Ukrainians overthrew their pro-Russian and corrupt government and started moving towards democracy and these are not uh, loud words but really they were they were dying for it and fighting for it and since then they were trying to control the politicians what they do how they spend money the public organizations the journalists and since that the situation has been really changing and gradually changing and i hope it will continue been like that. And I know that some people are scared that uh, about Ukraine after Zelensky, how it will be, will we go back to that corrupted system that we had before? And I say no, that Zelensky does what public demands from him. And if he, I think if he didn't dismiss the politicians, if he followed that corrupted path of our ex-presidents, he would be overthrown very fast. So I think every politician understands that. And uh, the power right now is in people's hands, especially in the army's hands, because uh, army is the biggest and the most respected institution right now in Ukraine, and nobody is more respected as a soldier by Ukrainians. Uh, so, yes. That's a really interesting. There's many really interesting points, I think. Thank you very much, Svetlana. Just one more question from me about politics. Um, sort of a speculative question, really. But on the back of these uh, sackings last week, there was some suggestion, there was a whisper of a suggestion that maybe af- after months, um, normal politics may-, may start to return to Ukraine this year. And I wanted to ask from your perspective what that might look like and um, what foreigners maybe should be looking out for or should understand about Ukrainian politics. And I appreciate it might be a difficult question to answer because we don't necessarily know this is this is a completely new s- scenario potentially for, for politicians and officials. But I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Uh First, I want to say that firing a dozen of politicians in one day is not new for Ukraine because since Zelensky came to power, he was firing ministers one after another during one week. And 
Uh, he said that he's going to do that till he makes a perfect government. I don't think that is possible in Ukraine for now, and I don't think that it's possible at all to make a perfect go government, but uh, Ukraine is really moving in the right direction. And if to talk about normal politi politics about in a bad way, in the like Soviet heritage that we had is... Uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian president, he banned all pro-Russian parties and parties connected with oligarchs. And I would say that the, the influence of oligarchs on Ukrainian politics was like the, well, it was called normal politics because uh, the oligarchs could bring a person completely unknown to uh, one of the main candidates to the president's chair like in half a year just using media because they control the media most of the tv channels in ukraine were divided between uh, oligarchs competing between each other but uh, uh zelensky implemented a law just right before the full-scale invasion forbidding for oligarchs to control the tv channels and also to fulfill declarations for in order to control uh, their enrichment And also, uh, I'm sure you heard about uh, Viktor Medvedchuk, one of the most influential oligarchs in Ukraine, and he was exchanged to, uh, recently for 200 Ukrainian soldiers. Not so recently, but he was exchanged because he was a very close friend to Putin. And uh, by, pro by banning pro-Russian parties, Ukraine uh, dismissed the influence of uh, Kremlin on our politics and we become truly independent and we can choose our path, our path by and uh, not listening to anybody. Thanks, Svetlana. Just moving away from politics, I wanted to ask you a few more questions about your experiences. Um, I understand that in 2019, you hitchhiked around um, then next Crimea. Um, why did you do this and what did you find? Um, at the time, uh, there were almost no news about Crimea and I really wanted to know how people live under the occupation and especially abroad. I mean, media were not talking about that or about situation in Donbass. So I went to Crimea by, by myself. I was... I was really young for that uh, trip. I mean, I was like 19 and it was a little bit dangerous because I was hitchhiking and I was posing as a Russian uh, because to in order to get some information about what pro-Russian people think. And when I got there, I saw that even people who voted uh, on referendum in favor of Russia, They didn't believe of the outcome. They didn't believe in the results because the 97% of people voting uh, for joining Russia when 82% supposedly came to voting, it was ridiculously even for them. And also I saw cons constant intimidation of the pro-Ukrainian po population and especially Crimean Tatars. I met some of them in the un undercover cafe in Simferopol and they were talking about police raiding their houses, about uh, people being imprisoned and even deported uh, to, uh, to uh, some regions of Russia as they were in 1944 by Stalin. And that's really horrific. And, you know, uh, today people think that like uh, Russian invasion, if they invaded something like everything is over, people just keep 
keep living their lives peacefully and the most important they are like no no fighting no tanks no weapons but what they don't know is uh, how much repressed people are there and uh putin has been gradually changing the population of crimea moving russians there offering them much cheaper uh apartments offering them big salaries nice jobs and at the same and the same time uh, pro ukrainian people and crimean tatars were flee fleeing the uh, the crimea and ukrainian language was banned from schools from universities uh i met a woman who was hiding a ukrainian flag under under her bed and she invited she kindly invited me to to her house and she showed me the flag and she said that you can't imagine how many people are waiting for ukraine to come back and they were actually in 2014 they were waiting that kyiv would say would send the army to liberate crimea to protect them but nobody came at the time at the time ukrainian government was beheaded and nobody wanted to take responsibility for crimea and the west didn't support us so i think there are there are, it's true that there are many pro russian people in crimea but not 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 because of they want to leave russia but because they actually are russians and they came from russia but as soon as ukraine started shelling the russian uh, bases in crimea military bases russian started fleeing the island the peninsula and uh, people some people that i met in crimea when i was traveling there some years ago uh they wrote me they actually wrote me and they were so happy saying that they they hope that crimea will be li- liberated soon also and in that time when i was there i thought there were there were zero chances that ukraine would ever return the crimea back but right now we 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 can do it backed by western western weapons uh, the only question is if we are going to receive those weapons and if there if we are going to be allowed to do that unfortunately ukraine doesn't have all that amount of um, weapons and people to do this right now but we hope that with the help we can do it Svetlana, you said, um, you know, you've been in London um, working for The Spectator magazine um, now. What What's your experience been in the UK? And have you got a, what, what's your experience of uh, British support or sometimes lack of support for, for Ukraine? What do you make of us, I guess, is the question. I can surely say that Britain is one of greatest friends of Ukraine right now and to be honest we didn't expect that we will receive such a big support and i guess britain was one of the first countries to send weapons to ukraine and to send uh, aid to ukraine and we are extremely thankful and when i've been here all the people were so kind and lovely to me always offering me help and uh, sometimes it makes me cry because you you come here uh you you like you flee the war and you come here and it is so strange to see people here just peacefully living their lives going to cafes going to parties visiting theaters and there is nothing bad in that i mean it is not british the fault of britain that ukraine was invaded but i'm amazed that even despite of that uh British people still help Ukraine and still care about us and I really really hope that they keep doing that because 
the politics of your government depend of the public opinion and as long as the public in Britain and UK uh, will be supporting Ukraine, will be asking to send weapons to Ukraine, you cover, your government will be doing that. Well, thank you very much, Svetlana, for answering all my questions. Uh, Francis Sternley, you've been listening to this conversation. Um, what would you like to talk to Svetlana about? Well, thank you, Svetlana. It's really interesting hearing your perspective on so many issues that we've discussed at length on the podcast in recent months. My first question actually follows on quite neatly from David's last one. I'm always very interested in any disparities between Western coverage of the war and Ukrainians. You've been a journalist now in both countries. Are there still any big differences in the coverage or in the analysis, do you think, between, say, a British perspective and a Ukrainian one? Or actually, are there more similarities now, do you think? There are much more similar similarities right now than they were uh, before the full-scale invasion, because previously, uh, Western media were reporting about the war in Donbass as a civil war, about the civil conflict, and uh, many of them were following Russian propaganda about that, and or just or Ukraine was just forgotten. And it's so sad that uh, we were remembered because of this uh, situation. But right now, I would say that most of the Western media right now report very well about the war in Ukraine. And uh, for me, but, you know, uh, for me, it is a bit of funny when they ask about morale in Ukraine. They ask this question all the time to in every interview with everybody. And for Ukrainian journalists, I mean, we even don't write articles about that because it is something very obvious for that for us. Because in Ukraine, people are fighting for their homes, for their lives, and they they have nowhere to live. 44 million people can just move from Ukraine so Russia can uh, invade and build a uh, a new country uh, there. So, uh, yes, I would say it is more similar right now. And sometimes it is hard to read about all these uh, concessions that uh, other journalists are um, offering to you that Ukraine should do or Ukraine must do about the outcomes of the war when they say that um, the, the Donbass is mostly pro-Russian, you know, when you don't know the context very well and you just write two words, Donbass is pro-Russian, it gives the perspective for the readers here, okay, the Donbass is pro-Russian, then why do we fight? Then why should we send weapons to Ukraine? Why should they fight for it? Why should people die for it? And I sometimes I really would like that they look a little deeper in these problems that Ukraine has and they take into account Russian propaganda uh, about Donbass and about Crimea and that there are thousands of people who are waiting for Ukraine to come back and when uh, foreign reporters they come to front line to report and they ask people uh, about whom they are supporting sometimes they are scared to say that they are not supporting Russia because later that can, they can be killed or imprisoned uh, if their village gets invaded or occupied. And I really would like journalists to take that into account. Thank you. Well, I'm just riffing off what you were saying there. I'm an uh, assistant comment editor here at The Telegraph. I'm commissioning pieces all the time, quite often on foreign affairs and particularly on Ukraine. Are there any subjects on the issue of Ukraine that you think are really underexplored that us in the West should be commissioning more pieces on? 
I think about the Crimea and Crimean Tatars because I haven't seen anybody mentioning uh, the fight of Crimean Tatars here. Uh, usually Crimea is being talked about just a lifeless piece of land that Ukraine and Russia can't agree about. But actually it's something much bigger and I would say that uh, R Russia has been committing a genocide against Crimean Tatars in Crimea uh, since 1944 and Putin is keeping doing it now after Stalin and I think that we should consider the question of Crimea not only from Ukrainian point of view or Russian point of view but also by point of view from Crimean Tatars because they were the original citizens of Crimea till Russia started their repressions uh, many, many years ago. And I think they have the right uh, to be spoken to and they have the right to have a voice and to, to be listened to. And I really think that uh, Western media should talk about that much more. I'll certainly make a note of that. One last question from me, if I may, which is I was speaking to another young Ukrainian very recently and we were talking about thinking long, long term for Ukraine at the end of the war. There have obviously been many people like yourself, many Ukrainians who've been forced to leave the country. How optimistic are you that when the war is over and Ukraine is trying to rebuild that those young people will go back? I think that as soon as the hostility stops, um, the majority of people who fled the war will come back to rebuild Ukraine. And I think they will have many op op opportunities there as uh, uh, I think many investors will come to Ukraine to rebuild and it will mean more jobs. And also they have families there, they have lives there, they have houses there. They were like gathering money all their lives to buy a house and now they just had to flee it because of the Russian invasion. So I think many will return and uh, if to talk even about me or my friends or people that I know, we all miss our country, it is our home, we all miss our families and I, and I really wish that they live peacefully and just it is all we all we want is peace, but uh, peace not on Russian terms, because that will mean that uh, Ukrainians will live like as slaves under Russian doctrine, and our language will be uh, forbidden or persecuted. So yes, I I hope I hope that most of them will return, and I hope that the the war will end very soon. But we also have to understand that. The more war lasts, uh, the more the less chances that uh, the the majority Ukrainians will return because here they start building their lives, and maybe I mean maybe they will like it and think okay I want to stay and then don't see anything wrong in that. But I really hope that most people will return because thousands of Ukrainians have been killed and. Uh, young men, women, our soldiers, and Ukraine needs young people to come back and to help to rebuild the country. Well, thank you so much, Svetlana, for your thoughts and analysis there. Thank you very much, Francis, for your questions. Svetlana, is there anything you haven't spoken about or haven't mentioned that you would want our listeners to know and understand? First, I would like to thank again to all the people in Britain for supporting Ukraine or trying to understand why you should support Ukraine and 
because on your decisions here depend the lives of our people there and you are you yes you are spending money that you could spend on your country but ukraine is paying ukrainians are paying with their lives for every day they live in freedom and i would like you to remember that and just thank you very much very much uh, for helping us and you are always welcome in ukraine after our victory Well, thank you very much, Svetlana Moronets, for your thoughts and analysis. Um, we'll come back to you at the end of the episode just for your very final thoughts. Um, but first, Francis Sternley, um, you've got a few more diplomatic updates for us before before we wrap up. Can you talk us through them? Certainly. So we've talked about the F-16s earlier on. And I just thought there are a few others that we should touch on before we end today. We've talked a lot about Belarus, and I know that we're going to have a Belarusian expert on in the coming days. That interview is, un- I think you interviewed him yesterday, didn't you, David? So I was um, like, coming weeks. We, we spoke for more than an hour, so we think we might need to cut that one. Yes, yes. It, <laughs> it's, it's, certainly it's, it's a lot to cover on this issue. Yes. So um, um, we watch this space. We will do more on Belarus. But I've just wanted to touch on it again, because it has been something that we've returned to continuously now in recent weeks. And President Putin today has backed a plan to set up a joint military training center in Belarus as fears obviously are mounting that Minsk could enter the Ukraine conflict to fight with Moscow. This is a really co- a real cause of concern. Of course, Belarus were absolutely vital in terms of offering a launch pad to Russia for the first uh, invasion back in February. If there were another, then they would be integral again. So, uh, as I say, no means guarantee, but it does speak, I think, to a great increasing anxiety that Belarus is becoming closer with Russia, is working more closely with them on military matters. And, as I say, this decree, which has been published, has talked about the defense and foreign ministers really working more closely together in order to establish these facilities. It doesn't specify where exactly this would be based, but... Already Moscow, of course, have allowed Belarusian territory to be used already throughout this war. And this would speak to, I think, it being that only being ramped up in the coming weeks, potentially, which, of course, will be a concern given the planned, we understand, Russian offensive towards uh, the end of March. In other news, I just wanted to come back on uh, Olaf Scholz. He's currently uh, on his first trip to South America, and there's been quite an interesting development there. We've obviously spoken at length in recent months about concerns around South America and how Russian narratives there are far more popular than, say, the Western ones on the attitudes to Ukraine. Of course, there's been a lot of South American nations that abstained in the condemnation of Russia in the United Nations votes. And uh, there's been another continuation of this theme, unfortunately, with Olaf Scholz having a joint news conference with um, uh, with the new Brazilian president, uh, Mr. Lula. And Mr. Lula has said that uh, whilst he was delighted to have Olaf Scholz there, when Scholz started talking about Ukraine, it was very, very clear that um, he was quite frustrated by this. He sort of turned quite stony, um, stony-faced. He is, of course, a fellow left-wing um, leader, so and perhaps he felt like he was caught off guard. He thought that Scholz would not say what he said with regard to Ukraine, which is that he was hoping that Brazil would do more to support Ukraine. And then this was his response. I think that Russia made the classic mistake of invading another country's territory. So Russia is wrong. But I still think that when one won't, two won't fight. You have to want peace. So he clearly is trying to, 
latch on to this idea that the only way that there can be peace is essentially if Ukraine also puts down its arms, which of course would be very, very strongly denounced by, uh, uh, by Ukraine and many other Western countries. So rather uncomfortable meeting, it has to be said, I think, and rather embarrassing for Mr. Schultz, who I think was hoping for a little bit more of a warmer response on this question, given his own scepticism about uh, the, the, what weapons should be provided to, uh, to Ukraine. And just one more update. I spoke about Boris Johnson, former British Prime Minister, yesterday. He's now in America and interestingly has published a piece uh, in the Washington Post, who of course have done extensive coverage into the war. Um, have done some very good investigative journalism and reportage on the intelligence, particularly with regard to uh, the invasion, uh, both prior to the war, uh, prior to the full-scale invasion, should I say, and, prior, and, uh, and since. But in his opinion piece, he talks about how the war has vaporized the case against admitting Ukraine to NATO. And he talks about how there were decades of his, quote, diplomatic doublespeak on the subject, which he believes contributed to the war in the first place. So he says that the argument that allowing Ukraine to join NATO would be provocative to Russia is no longer valid. And he said that as prime minister, he should never have accepted that argument, which, of course, was the orthodoxy prior to the invasion. And some one could argue even is an orthodoxy among certain parties. It says we should have insisted on the reality that the Kremlin had nothing to fear from NATO because it is a defensive alliance. Putin has destroyed countless lives, homes, hopes and dreams. He has also destroyed the slightest reason to sympathise with him or to humour him in his paranoia. So very interesting remarks from a former uh, Western leader, clearly a challenge to Western leaders who still think that in some way it's the West that's provoking in its actions towards Russia when it's Russia that at least now Boris Johnson saying has been the aggressor all along and the arguments around this idea of NATO expansionism just doesn't hold up. Regular listeners will of course know my own view which is this old idea about NATO expansionism is not often talked enough in about the fact that it's a desire and the sovereign right of, of the Ukrainian people to desire to join and to seek to join any alliance that they wish whether that be the European Union or whether it be NATO. Now whether NATO or the European Union accept them is a separate question but it's their right to do that and it's still this Russian narrative is constantly peddled you hear which is that oh well uh, it, it, it matters what Russia thinks in that question. Well it shouldn't matter frankly um, in these kind of conversations I would argue. But anyway I digress. Just one last thing on Boris Johnson before I end. Interestingly, he's due to be meeting with Republican lawmakers this week um, as part of this, uh, his meeting over there, his, um, his visit over there. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that it's Republicans that he's meeting with. He's scheduled to be having a conversation at a private Republican club. That's according to a representative in the House of Representatives, Joe Wilson, who's involved in the Foreign Affairs Committee. He's also scheduled to be meeting some Republican senators. And I think we can uh, clearly see why this is taking place. There are anxieties, rightly or wrongly, about the Republican Party and their scale of commitment to Ukraine in the long term. And clearly, Boris Johnson, being a very popular British Prime Minister across the pond as well. I think actually he's technically an American citizen because he was born in the States. But anyway, that's a separate question. Um, and so this is, I think, an attempt by him to uh, emphasize the importance of maintaining Ukraine uh, long term. So just revealing, I think, that he's going to be meeting with them. But I think that's where with the lay of the land is, David, on the diplomatic space today. 
Well, thank you very much, Francis, for all of those updates. I think we've come to the end of our time together today, unfortunately. So I'll just go to uh, Francis and Svetlana for your final thoughts. Uh, Roland has joined us again. I don't know if, Roland, if you want to come in. No worries if not. But uh, Francis, if you want to go first, what will you be looking at and thinking about in the coming days? Well, thanks, David. I spoke yesterday again about the issue of goods in getting into Russia behind sanctions. So already we've seen, and I spoke about several weeks ago, how supermarkets, even even in not necessarily in the cities, are still incredibly well stocked with Western goods. Well, interestingly, I was looking back and there was quite a good investigative piece, which I don't think I had a chance to mention a couple of weeks ago, which I should have, which was by the New York Times into how some of these goods are actually logistically reaching Russia. And in short, it's through a long line of trucks that are traveling through the country of Georgia. So obviously, whilst the war abruptly cut back many of Russia's trade links to Europe, there's still back rays in. And Georgia, former Soviet Republic, of course, which fought its own rather painful war with Moscow in 2008, is emerging as a convenient logistics conduit between Russia and the outside world. Now, it doesn't get necessarily be, it's not necessarily something that is being enabled or encouraged by the government, but it's happening naturally by, the, by its geography. And they, the piece in the New York Times talks to some of the truckers who are involved in this activity. Uh, it talks about how neighboring countries like Armenia and Azerbaijan have also helped Russia weather the economic storm caused by its invasion um, uh, back in February last year. It's interesting just the scale of this. So the, the lines of these trucks apparently stretch all the way back to Georgia's capital, uh, which is about 100 miles from the border. But that isn't one long trail of trucks. Rather, they're sort of staggered. But nonetheless, even with the staggering, it's if you were to measure it where it all ends, it's, as I say, over 100 miles. And it just, again, I think speaks to these are the kind of the details that are very, very difficult for us to get a grasp on until you get, you know, an investigative journalist on the ground who actually goes there and sees what's going on. Otherwise, these things remain mysteries. So it's a really, really interesting piece that I would recommend that, that listeners check out. And it'll be something that I'll be looking at in more detail over the coming weeks, because this question of how Russia's economy in the short term, and I emphasize this, in the short term remains buoyant, is a troubling one when the sanctions are so extensive. And I think it's something that we're all um, Western journalists and Western governments should be perhaps keeping a closer eye on than we have. Svetlana Moranets, thank you so much for joining us. Would you like the very final words? Uh, thank you. I would like to stress out that any peace deal cut right now with Russia will mean that the bigger war will be just postponed because since 2014, in Ukraine, we have seen that Putin's goal was just that was to invite to invade the whole country, and very very before the 24th of February, like some days before, Zelensky offered to Putin uh, some concessions, is to give up Ukrainian NATO ambitions, as it was the ma- the main reason Putin claimed he inv- he's go- he was going to invade, and. Russia anyway invaded. So I think the problem is not in NATO. The problem is just in Ukrainians existing as an independent uh, nation. That's why Ukrainians uh, are so desperate to fight as long as they can and to repel Russian army from our lands. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk 
forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear and Isabel Bouchard. And today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.